0: Principal of Sageman Consulting LLC, but many of you know him as the author, among other things, of Understanding Terror Networks and Leaderless Jihad, and also Audrey Kurth Cronin. Uh, Her title is Professor at the National War College, but she has written and published widely on this question, uh, the two most relevant uh, being an article in the summer 2006 issue of International Security entitled How Al Qaeda Ends, and she's just completed work on the book How Terrorism Ends Lessons from the Decline and demise of terrorist organizations. When will that be out, Audrey? Um, in the next, four or five next four or five months. So very soon, P- perfect timing. Um, I don't want to, as I've said before, uh, when I when I did the introduction for the first panel. The full bios are available online. Those of you who are watching on C-SPAN can access at cato.org counterterrorism, can see the full bios. Uh, those of you who, who are here also have them in your hands, perhaps. Uh, and so rather than me take up more time, I will simply introduce Andrew Mack, and we'll have a very rich discussion over the next uh, hour and a half. Thank you. Can we check this up at all? Yes, absolutely, right there. Very shy. (laughs) (laughs) No, he's not.
1: Um, It's a great pleasure to be here today, and thanks to uh, to Chris and his team for inviting me. Um, I attended the last of uh, these uh, workshops, and it was an illuminating experience. I should explain that I come to this uh, I come to this topic not as an expert in terrorism in any way, but we run something do something called the Human Security Report. Um, which is published by Oxford, and it's a sort of companion volume to the UN's human development report. And we track trends in armed conflict around the world. And over the years, we've become increasingly concerned that we really need to, needed to track trends in terrorism around the world as well. Um, but we like using good databases, and there are a number of databases out there at the moment, but they are, um, while interesting, um, anything but user-friendly. And it's taken us quite a long time to get into them. And we believe that one of the reasons that there is so much of the discussion about are we winning or losing the war on terrorism is anecdotal uh, rather than based on quantitative evidence is although there is quantitative evidence out there, it's extremely difficult other than people who are very, very determined to access. Let me start off by a quote from Don Rumsfeld who noted somewhat uh, plaintively, I think, in October 2003, we lack metrics to know whether we're winning or losing the global war on terror. Well, today there are metrics, but as I've said, they're somewhat difficult to unpack. So when we set out um, last year, the beginning of last year, to report on trends in global terrorism, the consensus amongst the Western experts, and it's a consensus which I think has shifted since then, was that the threat of terrorism, particularly Islamist terrorism, was growing. What we found was very much at odds with that conventional wisdom. Firstly, we found that the incidence of terrorism, and when we talk about incidents, we're using fatalities as our measure rather than attacks. And the reason for that is um, what it is that constitutes an attack can mean all sorts of different things. A hundred small attacks in Bangladesh on one day can be counted as one single attack or a hundred separate attacks, whereas a fatality is a fatality is a fatality. So although we think that both measures are useful, fatalities are the ones ones we use. So what we found was that there had been a decline in the incidence of terrorism thus defined, although the the timing of that decline depended very much on what definition of terrorism um, one used. And secondly, and this I think is no surprise to this audience, the loose-knit terror network associated with Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda had suffered a dramatic collapse in public support in the Muslim world over the last three to four years. Our conclusion came from what I think was probably the first comprehensive analysis of the terrorism data sets available in the United States, the terrorism data sets that deal with both domestic and international terrorism. Um, These are the, the National Counterterrorism Center, which is by far the best resourced and I think now the best, the Memorial Institute for the Prevention of Terrorism, and START at the University of Maryland. These are the only three data sets that include domestic terrorism. Um, There are other data sets which have been around for a longer time, the ITERATE data set, but it only deals with international terrorism. And that distinction between international and national terrorism has become increasingly difficult um, to sustain. Each data set has its drawbacks. None of them are user-friendly. NCTC is by far the best resource, as I mentioned, but it only has data starting in 2005. Start, on the other hand, only has data going up to 2004, so it's not much good for contemporary trends. And MIPT went out of business last year, so it's not useful for anything anymore. All three data sets found that global terrorism fatalities rose dramatically in the wake of the U.S.-led invasion and occupation of Iraq. And it was civilian fatalities, and this was something that really surprised us, it was civilian fatalities in Iraq that were driving almost all of the global increase. MIPT's data, for example, indicated that in 2006, Iraq accounted for a startling 76% of all global fatalities from terrorism. NCT's estimate was 64%. But by defining civilians killed in civil wars as victims of terrorism, as do all three of these data sets, we find, a situation, we find ourselves in a situation which is somewhat odd. We normally see such actions as war crimes or crimes against humanity. When large numbers of civilians are killed in a civil war in Africa, we don't normally say this is terrorism. We normally say it's a war crime or a crime against humanity, or in some cases, genocide. And the problem here was that the data sets, the, those who created these data sets, haven't applied their definition consistently. While tens of thousands of civilians, of civilians in Iraq's civil wars are counted as victims of terrorism, hundreds of thousands of civilians killed by non-state actors in sub-Saharan Africa's civil wars have been completely or largely ignored. MIPT, for example, found that there were some 2,000 terrorism fatalities in Iraq in 2004 But there were none in Sudan, despite the fact that in Darfur, hundreds if not thousands of civilians were deliberately slaughtered by the Janjaweed and other armed groups during that year. Had civilians killed by non-state groups in civil wars in Africa and elsewhere been counted as victims of terrorism as they had been in Iraq, the global terror trend data would have looked very different. How can I say this with confidence? because there's been a 70% decline in high-intensity civil wars around the world since the early 1990s, one that accelerated in the new millennium. Had all the victims killed by non-state groups in these wars been counted as victims of terrorism, we would have seen a steep decline moving from the early 1990s, with an increase um, associated with uh, the Iraq war, but an increase from a much higher um, previous baseline. Even if we accept the idea that killing civilians in civil wars should be called terrorism, in other words, even if we buy into this definition, which is slightly odd, rather than a war crime, if we include the Iraq data, there's still been a major decline in the incidence of terrorism worldwide, but it didn't take place until the second half of 2007. In December 2007, NCTC released new data that revealed that the combined fatalities from Islamist and non-Islamist terrorism in Iraq had dropped sharply from the middle of the year. By the end of September, terrorism fatalities of all types in Iraq were down by 55 percent, a change that drove the global toll down by 40 percent. So you can see that once again what happens in Iraq is driving the global terrorism toll. This decline was caused, as everybody here knows, by the dramatic changes in the security situation on the ground in Iraq, including the Sunni awakening, including the Shia militia ceasefire, and including the surge. The war on terror, however defined, however, played a relatively small part. By September 2008, the latest period for which we have data, the NCTC global monthly global fatality toll was some t- uh, 1,200 deaths, half that of the high point in 2007. Islamist terror groups were responsible for half of these killings. And as a side, and by way of contrast, if you look at the International Rescue Committee's um, data on the number of civilians who are dying each month from war-exacerbated disease and malnutrition, that total is in excess of 30,000. I often point this out. just If we are concerned about human lives being lost as a consequence of war, there's a huge difference between one conflict in sub-Saharan Africa and all terrorist uh, fatalities on, a global, on, a, on an annual basis. When we presented um, these findings in May last year, we got quite a lot of uh, media coverage, and we were warmly complimented by Rush Limbaugh for proving that the war on terror was a success. <laughs> and we had, of course, argued nothing of the sort. But Rush had pointed out: they said, you know, Hit to 2001, here was a figure, and they, these guys are saying that in 2007 it's 40% less. And the war on terror started in 2001. Ergo, the war on terror caused the decline. Um, Rush Limbaugh, I should add, did express some astonishment that any such report could have emanated from Canada. <laughs> Not surprisingly, when we, our, when we brought our report out, there was some scepticism. Critics warned particularly against complacency. The fact that fatality numbers weren't going down, didn't they point, didn't they point out necessarily mean that there wouldn't be another 9-11 or worse next year or the year afterwards. And this is clearly true. We simply don't know. And we also agree that there are zero grounds for complacency. Others argue these figures didn't take into account the fact that many terrorist operations are foiled. That is, fatalities, falling fatalities don't necessarily mean any diminution in the terrorist determination to continue to pursue armed struggle. And this is, of course, also true. In fact, Indeed, we made the point... Um, in our report, the counter-terrorist strategies were one of the factors that had helped drive terrorist numbers down, but we insisted that they were just one among many. And what the public opinion poll evidence showed, particularly from the Muslim world, is that the greatest achievement of the Islamist terror groups has been to alienate themselves, not just from the West, but also from fellow Muslims. And we were struck going through Terror Free Tomorrow and Pew and the various, those various other um, polls that have focused on these issues, just how dramatic these changes had been. Just a few examples. December 2007, Terror-Free Tomorrow reported that Osama bin Laden's Saudi countrymen, quote, have turned dramatically against him, his organization of al-Qaeda and terrorism itself. July 2007, Pew reported that Muslim support for attacks against civilians had more than halved in five years in four key Islamic countries, Lebanon, Bangladesh, Pakistan, and Indonesia. And interestingly, the one one country or territory where support for suicide terrorism hasn't gone down or hadn't gone down, at least according to one poll, was Palestine. And there's maybe a reason for that. In Palestine, Palestinians by and large target Israelis in their suicide operations. They don't target fellow Palestinians. December um, 2006... Um, An ABC poll found that just 1% of Afghans felt strong support for the presence of the Taliban and the jihadi fighters in their country. September 2007, a BBC-ABC poll found 100% of Iraqis, Sunni as well as Shia, um, uh, found tax on civilians to be, quote, unacceptable. The decline in support for Islamist terror groups around the world, we argue, is no accident. These groups extol an extremist ideology that the overwhelming majority of Muslims reject, while the policies they seek to impose are harshly, harshly repressive and deeply resented. And this, plus their indiscriminate terror campaigns, which mostly target fellow Muslims, have not only generated widespread popular disaffection, but have also sparked a deep and bitter ideological division within the movement and bolstered increasingly effective official anti terror campaigns in many countries. That's the good news. The bad news is mostly in Afghanistan and Pakistan, where in both countries the incidence of Islamist terrorism is again rising. It's roughly doubled over the past uh, two or three years. In both, at least in Pakistan, um, and I'm at loss to know why this should be the case, public support for the Taliban and Osama Osama bin Laden is again increasing. But the setbacks in both these countries, serious though they uh, they, they certainly are, should be seen in the context of improvements in the security situation um, in many other parts of the, particularly in the Muslim world, which have been plagued previously by um, Islamist terror terrorism. But perhaps the most important reason for long-term optimism is that terrorist campaigns, secular as well as religious, very rarely achieve their strategic objectives. Um, Bob Pape isn't here, but I think he would probably agree that even the the suicide operations that he talks about, they're very often tactical objectives that constitute a success and not strategic ones. And the evidence for this, I think, is as overwhelming as it's little known. A recent uh, RAND Corporation study, which many of you know, found that 90% of the 268 terror campaigns that have ended since 1968 have ended since, I think it was 1998, um, have failed. And an earlier study by Max Abrams, who is here today, um, came to essentially the same conclusion with a somewhat smaller, smaller data set. But only in a small... And this was one of, the, I think, the most interesting finding that came out of the, of the RAND study. Um, only a small percentage of cases were the, the terror campaigns defeated militarily. Most either faded away, ended in some form a negotiated settlement, or were the terrorists being brought to justice by the police and, and taken to the courts. And there would, I think, and I hope, be some important lessons there for the new administration. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) Uh,
2: I'm Mark Sageman. Uh, Thank
0: you.
2: Okay. I want to thank uh, Chris for inviting me and the Cato Institute for uh, hosting this. Uh, What I want to talk about uh, here uh, are two frameworks to think about uh, al-Qaeda in the West. And I'm really just interested in al-Qaeda in the West. What I'm saying may or may not be relevant to what's happening in Pakistan or Afghanistan, but uh, definitely in the West. I was not one of those fellows that you polled last year because I was one of the ones saying al-Qaeda was definitely on the run. You just have to see the statistics. There's not been a single fatality from Al-Qaeda or Al-Qaeda-linked group in the West since July 7, 2005. That's three and a half years ago. And it was fairly obvious already two years ago when I wrote my last book that this was the case. Uh, you had a few criticisms when you said that. Uh, I had insults. But... It's nice to be right. (laughs) The two things that I actually want to talk about are uh, uh, radicalization and the evolution of the threat. We have uh, always had the tendency of thinking about uh, terrorism really as an essential quality or as an essential phenomenon that does not change. And it turns out it actually does change over time. changes dramatically so that what we probably were saying four years ago uh, is probably not relevant to uh, uh, the threat right now. What do I mean by radicalization? What I mean by radicalization, it's a behavioral view of things. It's really the path to political violence, usually against civilians. What's inside terrorist's head uh, may or may not be extreme. That has to be worked out. We cannot assume that because people have extreme beliefs, they're going to have extreme behavior. Uh, Indeed, that usually is not the case. Uh, So what kind of accounts this uh, behavioral path towards violence? I would argue four main uh, themes uh, that uh, I see from my database. One is the notion of moral outrage. We have a tendency of seeing everything from a very cognitive point of view. And it turns out that this is not about how people think, but how they feel most of the time. Uh, And here, the sense of moral outrage could be against large moral violation globally, such as the invasion of Iraq, Muslim being killed in Gaza right now. Uh, That's not really reported in the American press, but it's very loud and clear in Al Jazeera the Arabic version, not the English version, uh, but uh, this, this is going to cause a problem. Um, but it could also be a local sense of moral outrage, just, such as what uh, the uh, local uh, representative of the states do locally, namely the police. It's about arrest, killing. And here I'm really talking about killing, rape, arrests, something that's really kind of moral in a sense. And this often activates a certain collective identity. In this case, because I'm talking about al-Qaeda, it's a Muslim collective identity. And there, the local and the global reinforce each other. But that's not enough. The second prong here is uh, uh, a cognitive one. Uh, It has to be framed a certain way. And the frame right now, it's very simple. This is a war against Islam. And in a sense, our own... uh, Uh, public uh, speakers in the United States have often stressed that eh, by their action, unfortunately, (laughs) and I think this is where uh, good uh, uh, public affairs uh, has a a tremendous role, and I completely agree with uh, Steve Cole in terms of this is the first thing that really needs to be framed by uh, a new President uh, Obama. This war against Islam is really a soundbite. Uh, somebody mentioned before, isn't Islam causing this? No, I completely agree with Mia, who told you earlier that for every out of context quote from either the Quran and the Hadith, you can actually trump those by a hundred quotes <laughs> against it, because it turns out, uh, uh, you know, the Prophet really uh, preached peace uh, as opposed to war. Now, uh, this notion that uh, the West is at war against Islam is embedded into other type of beliefs. And here is where the United States is a little bit different from Europe. It's much easier to actually believe that your own state is at war against you if you're facing discrimination, if you're facing um, uh, all kinds of political or police harassment uh, in the street. Our concept of the American dream and the melting pot undermines this frame that the U.S. is at war against its own Muslim. Uh, And the um, election of President Obama has completely resonated around uh, the Muslim world. If you actually look at the jihadi website, this is a very, very active right now a topic of discussion they're trying to make sense of this because how could this state be so evil when they actually elect a complete outsider that nobody gave a chance Uh, uh, this is actually the grandson Uh, I I was going to say a, a shepherd but it turns out that his grandfather was herding goats he was a goat herd not a shepherd I was corrected on that previously. <laughs> uh, but this is a, the grandson of a Godherd, a Kenyan Godherd. I mean, this can only happen in the United States. And indeed, if you actually look at what's happening in Europe, they're asking right now, how come we don't have in Obama in our political system, which is a very close political system? You still have the same warmed-up politicians in France uh, for the last 20, 30 years, same uh, in Germany, same everywhere else – and I guess in Italy, how many times uh, has been Berlusconi been prime minister? But you see the point. The third prong is uh, the reason this frame sticks to people is that it really does resonate with personal experience. And this is very much this notion of interpretation that Max was talking about earlier today and um, uh, other pe- uh, speakers as well. Uh, and this is where uh, your personal experience, namely your personal grievances, uh, what people call the root causes, have an effect it 's an indirect effect it 's one that's interpreted uh, through discussion. Any idea is mediated through group discussion that 's really what you need to come out with it it 's not an individual just kind of uh, fighting with his own concept. And here, in terms of uh, uh, personal grievances, you have a very wide local variation and different historical legacies. As I mentioned, the United States is is a little bit different from Europe, but even within Europe, there's tremendous, tremendous variation from the idealism of France, liberté, égalité, fraternité, to the notion that Uh, citizenship is based on blood relationship, like in Germany, to a communitarian view of things, like Britain. You see this tremendous variation. But all of it uh, has common themes in Europe, namely that um, uh, Muslims uh, in Europe uh, are a recent phenomenon, in a sense. Most Muslims, uh, 12 to 20 million Muslims in Europe, have... um, Grown from about half a million before uh, uh, World War II, to uh, in the last sixty years, you can see that it kind of multiplied by uh, forty. And there, um, Europe recruited uh, to for for both manufacturing and uh, the building industry. Uh, and agricultural work. In other, in other words, Muslims in Europe are our Mexican. And so they, they, they very self-consciously were recruited from rural areas, not well-educated. And so what you have now is second and third generation uh, children of um, uh, unskilled labor as opposed to the United States. Most of our first-wave Muslims were very well-educated people. You have the upper middle class in 2007, I think the average income of a Muslim uh, uh, family was about $70,000, and the average income of an American family uh, was $48,000. So you can see it was 40% higher. This is completely opposite in Europe. Uh, And uh, so you have huge, huge rates of unemployment, about three times the native population unemployment rate. And in order to kind of sustain that type of unemployment, you really need to have a strong welfare state, Uh, And uh, I'm not arguing that European powers are paying young people to be full-time jihadis, which actually they are, because if you look at uh, where the money comes from, it actually comes from welfare payments or credit card fraud uh, in in Europe. It doesn't really come from, uh, you know, donation uh, or anything like that. That probably is the Middle East, but that's not Europe. Uh, so the, the state sponsors of terrorism in Europe are basically Germany, France, Britain, you know, Canada, Australia. Uh, um, we're pretty cold-hearted, you know. You, you, you work, you eat. You don't work, you starve. But the problem is here, if somebody is still wants to uh, be an online jihadi, he's a little bit too tired at 6 p.m., to really be a full time jihadi, whereas in Europe, of course, they have nothing else to do. But I'm not really trying to tell you that um, it's all about money. It's not. It's about boredom. It really is more about boredom. When you're bored out of your mind that you don't really have good work, you actually, might, you know, the, the idea of, uh, of being, uh, you know, a hero to your peers is almost irresistible because that's how they kind of think about it. Um, And, of course, you have then uh, political uh, backlash in Europe because they have disproportionate uh, use of welfare. uh, And and so uh, what you get is... um, uh, you know the right an anti immigrant right that kind of uh, uh, triggers hostility between the two groups and those two escalate very rapidly, and that right actually polls about twenty percent in any Western European country. Uh, the fourth prong is that this is not enough you know because now you you know you know from the other panelists earlier today that uh, okay, so those types of um, condition uh, are, exist, um, in many places. So how come so few become terrorists? Well, so few become terrorists because they only mobilize through networks of trust. And that's really the fourth prong. And how do those networks of trust, uh, how are they created? How are they formed? As I mentioned before, or somebody mentioned that I mentioned, they really, it's a diaspora phenomenon. It's over 80% uh, worldwide in Europe. It's over 90%. And how, do those networks form? They're just basically an extension of everyday interaction. As I, uh, people are probably aware, it's mostly through friendship and kinship networks, about 70% friends, about 20% kin. That accounts for about 90%. And so you have people who self select, spontaneously form bunch of guys, groups that uh, uh, collectively, become more radicalized, not in terms of cognitive things, but in terms of carrying out uh, uh, operation. And this is very much self-recruitment. You don't need an outside recruiter to come in. They recruit each other every day. Uh, there's uh, no brainwashing that I could detect. This is very much adopting a jihadi cool youth culture in Europe. But that's basically uh, uh, dying. Uh, that's the good news. The mobilization through network is really uh, uh, started face-to-face about 20 years ago. It was a uh, young gang, students, expatriate, religious study group. But he's, it has now shifted uh, online. And so you have now online networks where you don't have the limitation of space and time. And it's transforming the threat because there are far more women, far more teenagers, kids, who are trolling on the Internet, and that links them to a global social movement that gives them uh, the vision and, and guidance. It's about the chat rooms. It's not about the website. It's about the chat rooms. And the chat rooms are becoming the invisible, virtual, uh, invisible hand guiding uh, and organizing terrorist operation worldwide. Uh, The group dynamic is very simple. It's increased commitment via interactivity where uh, those uh, sites or the group becomes an echo chamber encouraging mutual escalation of grievances. And after a while, you're ready to sacrifice yourself for your comrades, you know, developing this collective identity and the cause, namely, the script on how to do it. And there you have the slide into violence with in-group love and out-group hate. So... Looking at it chronologically, now that we understand the process of radicalization, how did that change over time? Um, well, it started out in, the, in universities as all bad ideas, and all good ideas start in universities. Uh, and start in universities in the Middle East, specifically in Egypt. And who goes to universities, usually upper middle class. They became well-educated, and they became religious at the universities. They actually joined in the mid-'20s. The first wave of uh, al-Qaeda terrorism, what became al-Qaeda central, the leadership of al-Qaeda central – uh, basically is that, very much Egyptian predominance, a few Saudis. Uh, they went to Pakistan in order to support the Afghan Mujahideen brothers. They were called the Afghan Arabs. And it still is the leadership of Al-Qaeda Central. There is no indication that bin Laden trusts anybody uh, that had not been there in the 1980s with him. Um, the second wave is very different. The second wave ideas from universities from Egypt drifted to Europe, and it really kind of, you see, uh, now European university graduates, mostly expatriates, uh, Middle Eastern expatriates to the West. They went to Afghanistan for training. They were actually far more interested in Bosnia, Chechnya, and Kashmir, uh, but the training was in Afghanistan. And, that second wave is, uh, they're still very much university, well-educated people, and they became the cadre of Al-Qaeda, even though there may be about two dozen left, uh, I would say, of the central leadership uh, of those cadre. You, you may have about 120, I, I think, that what happened the last three months. By the way, I don't know if you guys realize, but um, in the Fatah, there's been a huge bombing campaign, and... I think the West has killed four more al-Qaeda high-level guys in the last three months than we have ever since the fall of 2001. Uh, that's not really getting all that much press here in the West, but very much you read the Pakistani press, you keep on objecting to this. Um Those guys, as I said, trained in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, between 1996 and 2001, uh, was a golden age of al-Qaeda. It controlled all those little people, those little movements that kind of came to Afghanistan, focused them on the far enemy, that means the West, and provided sanctuary resources uh, to uh, people who came in. 9-11 changed the rules. After 9-11, we took terrorism very seriously. We went to Afghanistan destroyed sanctuary. We actually cut off funding. We killed the captured kill leaders, although not the top two guys, as Steve Cole uh, rightly mentioned. Uh, so those guys are dormant. Um, but we did break up the formal terrorist networks and Al-Qaeda was then confined, Al-Qaeda Central, the organization itself, was confined to the Afghan-Pakistani border. But then we have transition uh, networks. Uh, By that, I mean people who actually knew Friends who had gone to Afghanistan who got killed in the fall of 2001. They were fancieders, but they got activated because they wanted to come to the help of their friends and went to Pakistan, their friends and relatives. And those guys are, are fairly dangerous because they still look very much like the second wave expatriate, uh, or second generation, uh, Muslim in the West. Those are the guys who did Istanbul, Madrid, London. Uh, and the Southland, uh group that was arrested uh, last September. No, September before last, I'm sorry. Uh, but 9-11 and Iraq took the ideas out of the universities and diffused them to the streets. So now you have the third wave, which is mostly poor, educated, young, gang members in a sense muslim gang members with a high level of criminality which you didn't have in the first two wave completely changing they're the opposite of the first two wave so they're lower class and not really religious as a matter of fact they hide their lack of understanding of religion by saying they attack theories so that they reject every muslim uh, as true muslim which is convenient for them because they don't have to learn anything about islam (laughs) Uh, and uh, they think that the only true Muslim left are the few hundreds like them around the world. Uh, and the average age is about nineteen, twenty. So you can see it went from about 30, the leadership when they joined terrorist organization, 26, the cadre. Those guys are now 20. So the young wannabes having trouble linking with Al-Qaeda Central uh, in um the Afghan-Pakistan border, except for the British, who actually uh, have linked to Kashmiri groups because of family relations, they can bridge it. So you have local autonomy, no formal training, local financing, mostly homegrown here, informal with loose boundaries. They attempt to travel to Iraq to die or to Pakistan for training, very different destination with different ideas in mind. Uh, So basically what I'm arguing here is that this whole threat has undergone a Darwinian structural evolution... The process of radicalization is still the same, but the habitat has completely changed after 9-11, where you have people walk up to the threat of uh, uh, this uh, jihadi, uh, so-called jihadi, because, as I said, they don't know much about Islam, uh, terrorists. And it's enabled by the Internet, so what you have now is those scattered little groups around the world, self-organized, uh, 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 and that's what I call uh, the leaderless jihad now now this actually is a self-limiting threat why there's no state sponsor to keep it going they actually antagonize just about every state in the in the world you know including Saudi Arabia uh, that seem to to have uh, had some sympathy for them they have limited the appeal being a Taliban is not a positive thing in the Muslim community. It's actually an insult that they actually throw at each other. Hey, you Taliban, I mean, you fanatic. It's not really seen well. And also the horrors committing uh, by, uh, by the terrorists. Uh, uh, somebody mentioned already uh, that uh, wedding bombing in Amman. It turned a country that was 72% in favor of terrorism, because they're mostly Palestinian, as you point out, to... Uh, one that actually was uh, two weeks later, only about 29, 30 percent. So it completely flipped those figures around uh, in favor of terrorism. Uh, they also now have a virtual existence online and they cannot graduate to an offline political party because they would now, still in this environment, because a target for local law enforcement. And because of that, they can't impose any discipline on people who aspire to be them. So those guys are uh, the new wannabes um, who will try to do uh, greater uh, things. And there is no sense of strategy as well, because now you have everybody doing their own little things for their own individual reason. So my point is that this will decay for internal reason. What are the policy implications? The first two waves is very simple. Uh, do what we've done, namely denies sanctuary, eliminate leaders, the cadres, and the, the transitional network. But the third wave, it's very, very different. Here, it has to be a strategy of containment and acceleration of this process of internal decay. The, our main goal should be to prevent the radicalization of the next generation, namely... Take the glory out of terrorism. That's really one of the main reasons people want to become terrorists. It's not so much uh, for political reason, as Max pointed out earlier. It's to become like the Terminator. And they don't really, because if you actually look at the transcript of what they talk to each other, you know, when we uh, bug their apartment, that's what they talk about. They talk about the Terminator. They talk about Rambo. They talk about soccer stars. That's, you know, they live in their own fantasy. So you reframe by focusing on victims instead of perpetrators. In terms of countering this process of radicalization, you have to counter the four prongs that I mentioned. In terms of decreasing moral outrage, uh, smaller footprint in the Middle East, reduce local moral violation. The second aspect, in terms of uh, the framing, uh, you have to challenge your frame. That's a war on Islam by focusing more on victims. They're just killers. That's all. Uh, and, you know, talk about the benefit of immigration. In terms of the third prong, you know, the resonance with uh, the, the, the grievances, you reduce discrimination in the labor market, you reduce racism in Europe. They, you know, they claim there's no racism, but we talk about it. It's over there. <laughs> uh, and the fourth, uh, you have to eradicate the local terrorist network. Uh, and uh, this uh, implies vigorous international cooperation. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you.
3: just for the vertically ta- uh, challenged. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Audrey Kurth Cronin. And um, as Chris mentioned in his introduction, I'm a professor at the uh, U.S. National War College now. And so the first thing I'm required to do is to provide a disclaimer. I'm used to being an academic and not always have been an academic working for the U.S. government. So um, I have to mention that uh, what I say is strictly my own views, not necessarily the views of the U.S. government, not necessarily representing or actually not representing uh, the Department of Defense or any other institution of government. So it's just Audrey kurth Cronin up here speaking, um, and uh, hopefully... uh, I'll be able to add to the extremely interesting presentations we've just had. Actually, the problem with uh, going third is that a lot of what you plan to say is said, and I'm going to find um, in this presentation that a lot of what I'm planning to talk about, I agree with both Andrew and uh, Mark, but I I take a slightly different framework to it, a slightly different approach, so um, we'll see where that takes us. Chris asked us on this panel to talk about the question, how are we doing against the threat of global terrorism? And I've done a considerable amount of work myself with data, have finished a book that used uh, the MIPT data. Uh, I have a lot of respect for data, but no matter what experts claim, there's, this is a very difficult question to answer because, unlike in arms races or arguably in wars, the question of what to measure is highly difficult. There's no agreement on it. So developing what the military would call metrics metrics, on terrorism, uh, is very difficult because terrorist groups are not like little states. Um, We may still be calling this a global war on terrorism, but in this war, the classic metrics that are used for other kinds of war are not really all that useful. Things like territory gained, casualties suffered, leaders killed, economic strength, and the degree to which there is public will behind the enemy. These are classic measures of war and insurgency. They don't have the same meaning when it comes to uh, measuring the status of a terrorist campaign. Plus, the other problem is that sometimes we're forced to focus on what has not happened, uh, which pushes experts um, regrettably close to speculation sometimes. Terrorist campaigns are meant to shock, to leverage a position of weakness, to gain attention and to further a political aim, and there's not necessarily a linear relationship between those kinds of metrics and their success in accomplishing a political aim. Now, some people counter this problem by arguing that we should look at terrorism as essentially a law enforcement problem and measure it in the same way that we measure crime, that will never stop people from using the tactic of terrorism, so instead we need to think of managing the threat in the same way that we would, say, the murder rate. And the metrics of law enforcement would lead us to things like the number of incidents per year, plots foiled, successful prosecutions. But if we had used those metrics in the years before September 11th, we might have concluded that al-Qaeda was waning, because after all, it had only had uh, four confirmed attacks against American targets. And we would have been dead wrong. So... I'm not saying that we shouldn't use databases and metrics. I do it myself. I think it's very, very important. I think you're going to learn a lot from it. But I'm going to offer another approach just as a way of of sort of shifting our framework a little bit. I'm going to argue that with respect to al-Qaeda, for example, you can't really know how you're doing unless you have a vision of an endpoint or an objective or some sort of ending in mind. There are classic patterns of ending for terrorist campaigns, and once you recognize them, or at least rule some out, you can better judge how you are doing against those classic patterns. I think the concept of grand strategy, um, first, uh, I think most eloquently put forward by uh, Sir Basil Littleheart, is a good way to look at the campaign that al-Qaeda and associated groups has been uh, engaging in. Uh, Littleheart, of course, argued that the best way to formulate a grand strategy is to look beyond the war to the nature of the peace. So likewise, I think the best way to meet the current threat is to look beyond the international terrorist campaign that is inspired by al-Qaeda, beyond the short-term strategies that we have put in place to answer it, toward a broader vision of how it might end. Studying how terrorism ends, I think, is one of the best ways to inoculate ourselves against the strategies of terrorism, to avoid a dysfunctional action-reaction dynamic, and most important of all, I think, to have some hope of winning, some idea of what that means anyway. So today my talk will have three parts. First, I'll review a number of classic strategies of terrorism, and then secondly, I'll talk briefly about classic patterns of groups ending. I won't spend a lot of time on that second part. I've written extensively about it, and I don't want to bore you to death. But I will go over the two patterns that I think are most likely for al-Qaeda. And then finally, I'll conclude with some observations about what all this tells us about what we are doing today. So first, on the strategies of terrorism. I think you may have heard something about uh, the action-reaction uh, strategies that terrorism engages in. This morning, I'm unfortunately I was unable to come, being uh, involved with my teaching responsibilities at the War College. But um, the first strategy of terrorism that most people think about is compellence. Terrorism has been used in support of many different causes, but the natural assumption that governments, particularly in the West, tend to have, is that the goal of a group is compellence—that the that the purpose of threats are to influence another actor to stop doing an unwanted behavior or to start doing something else that a group wants it to do. Fitting terrorist group to activity into this kind of mental framework is natural. It's often used for state activity. It's very much in keeping with our Western strategic training. Sometimes it is accurate. Uh, for example, compellants may force states to withdraw from foreign commitments, through a strategy of punishment and attrition. Bob Pape's work, uh, I believe, goes um, very much towards this way of thinking, to make the commitment so painful that a government will abandon them. And at times, a strategy of compellence has appeared to work. Examples that are always cited, uh, not least by Osama bin Laden include the U.S. and French withdrawals from Lebanon in 1983, U.S. uh, withdrawal from Somalia in 93, the Israeli withdrawal from Lebanon in 2000. Some have seen terrorism in Iraq as a foreign-inspired plan to try to get the United States out. And many also argue that terrorism in Madrid in 2004 led to a change of government in Spain and a withdrawal of troops from Iraq. Now, of course, in some of these cases, it's an oversimplification. But terrorism is meant to oversimplify. That's one of its purposes. The interpretation is is very persuasive to those of us who are watching these attacks. And that's a major reason why it's put forth. Compellence tries to change a state's policy. And given our 20th century experience with air power, Western policymakers and strategic thinkers tend to find that logic very comfortably familiar air power, and uh, nuclear uh, deterrence kind of thinking, very dichotomous way of looking at terrorist attacks. So as a result, we have a tendency to focus exclusively on compellence but tend to be blind to the other typical strategies of terrorism and their practical implications. But groups that rely primarily on terrorism don't have the luxury of behaving as if they were small states, and I don't think that mindset is a promising way to envision the end or even to get there. So I'm going to talk to you about three other types of strategies, and I'm calling them strategies of leverage. The first one is provocation. This tries to force, force states to do something. Not necessarily a specific policy, but a vigorous action that works against the interests of the state. It was a common purpose of terrorism in the 19th century. Um, it was the main reason for the activities of Narodna the uh, Russian group. But provocation is a difficult strategy to apply effectively because terrorist groups often cause a state to behave in completely unforeseen ways. They might, they might push a state to do something that doesn't serve anyone's interests, to overreact. And this is, of course, I think, what happened with the outbreak of World War I. Now, there are a lot of other reasons why we had World War I. I'm not arguing that it was primarily because of terrorism, but I am saying that a terrorist attack acted as a catalyst And this was an attack that occurred in the context of many, many other attacks against major leaders, far more important leaders, frankly, than Franz Ferdinand. I mean, after all, uh, uh, President McKinley was killed, uh, the Italian premier was killed, Spanish prime minister, and so on and so forth. Imagine what would have happened today if we had those kinds of assassinations occurring. But the point I'm trying to make is that terrorism on its own is unimportant. Unimportant. But when it provokes a state, it can indirectly kill millions. And in that case, terrorism ended, if you will, by setting in play a cascade of state actions that resulted in a long and bloody systemic war. Now, another strategy of leverage is polarization. This tries to divide and delegitimize a government, directing itself at the effects of the attacks on the domestic politics or Uh, civil society within a state. It often drives regimes sharply to the right and forces populations to choose between the cause that the group is championing and brutal state repression, on the other hand. The goal is to drive these divided populations further apart, to make it impossible to have an operating middle within a state. This is a particularly attractive strategy uh, against democracies, And it disappeared regularly in the 20th century. Like the strategy of provocation, it often results in unintended consequences. There are a lot of examples I might cite. Uh, The LTTE in Sri Lanka, especially early on. The IRA in Northern Ireland. Terrorist activities in Germany, Austria, and Hungary after the First World War were meant to polarize. The Tupamaros in Uruguay would be the most um, extreme example of that. Sometimes a polarization polarization strategy actually drives a state to destroy itself. A third strategy of leverage is mobilization. Um, Terrorist attacks might be inspired to uh, um, cause potential supporters of a group to try to get them to rise up and to participate in what the group is is, um, wanting to accomplish. This is what the campaign of bombings and assassinations in the late 19th century did for the anarchist movement and the 1972 Munich Olympics massacre did for Palestinian nationalism. When terrorist attacks are used to mobilize, they're not necessarily directed towards changing the behavior of a state at all. Their goal is to energize potential recruits, to raise a group's profile internationally, draw resources, sympathizers, allies, attention... Mobilization is uniquely well-suited, I think, for today's context. I think the reasons are obvious. We have an increasingly globalized international community. Um, People are able to mobilize on a scale and and with a speed, with the Internet and other kinds of uh, means of communication, um, in an unprecedented way. And I would argue that mobilization has been the Al-Qaeda movement's most effective strategy thus far. If a group is truly successful in mobilizing large numbers, then this strategy can prolong the fight and enable, perhaps, enable it to transition to other kinds of uses of violence, including things like insurgency or conventional war. Okay, so who cares? What does all this mean? Why are we talking about these strategies? It's all rather theoretical. What I'm arguing is that there's a kind of historical pattern to these strategies, Provocation especially suited the 19th century because of the nature of aging autocratic regimes. They were particularly vulnerable to this kind of strategy. Compellence best fit the mid-20th century because it aligned very well with decolonization and nationalist movements whose aims could be expressed in terms of territory. Polarization was at the core of Marxist movements in the early years of the century and it reappeared again at the end of the century with terrorist attacks that were designed to polarize along racial, religious, ethnic, tribal, linguistic, or other kinds of lines. And as I've already argued, mobilization is uniquely suited for today's context with the sweeping changes in communications and economic ties, porous borders, dramatic cultural and political developments. I think that the groups that are most successful, either groups associated with al-Qaeda or even non-associated groups, the groups today that have been most successful and are continuing to have success to some degree, are those that are trying to mobilize. If you look at today's terrorist campaigns, most of them need two things to keep going, an effective message or narrative and an effective strategy to achieve it. Both of those things are very, very difficult to measure with our traditional metrics. So turning now to the question of how al-Qaeda is doing and um, what we mean by endings of campaigns, very quickly. There's a kind of myth that today's terrorism is more likely to persist and succeed. But are groups that use terrorism really doing all that well? I think Max probably talked to you about this this morning. You've already heard quite a bit uh, on this as well from Andrew. Um, In my research, I also came up with the conclusion that the number of groups that have succeeded is is much less than 5%. Terrorism is not a promising vocation. It always ends. And I've come up with seven different pathways for those endings, patterns. And I'll go through them very quickly because many of them, five of them don't really apply to al-Qaeda and the current threat very well. The first is decapitation, the capture or killing of the leader. There are lots of other reasons why we want to decapitate. We want to capture and kill uh, Osama bin Laden and Zawahiri and um, many other senior al-Qaeda leaders. But the question of whether that's going to end al-Qaeda, I think, is pretty obvious. It's not going to end al-Qaeda because uh, it's, a, it's a movement that has many different forms and uh, has already excited uh, what Mark calls leaderless jihad, and I think it's not certainly not going to be a silver bullet. Secondly is generational failure. That is the failure to pass the cause to the next generation, and this doesn't apply to al-Qaeda because we're arguably into the third or fourth generation um, after the first group. Thirdly is achievement of the cause, and... Um, Very few groups achieve their strategic aims, and it's obvious that al-Qaeda is not going to achieve its, uh, at least uh, depending upon which of the many statements they make. Most of the aims that al-Qaeda puts forth would require overturning the entire international system. I think that's unlikely. Fourth would be negotiations. Um, It's obvious that we can't negotiate with the core of al-Qaeda, We can talk in the question and answer period about whether it might be possibly important to negotiate with some local groups that name some element of um, identification with al-Qaeda's agenda. It's a very touchy question. I'll be glad to discuss it during Q&A. The key thing, I think, is to try to disaggregate what we call the al-Qaeda movement and to be very, very careful about Um, being clear about the degree to which a group is or is not connected, and try to increase the cleavages between local groups and the broader movement as much as possible. But with respect to the center of al-Qaeda, negotiations are a non-starter. Implosion is the fifth scenario, and I think that is one of the most promising endings for al-Qaeda. By implosion, I mean that the population becomes unwilling to support the cause. The support can be active, providing recruits or raising money, or passive, refusing to turn people in, and so forth. And there are lots of reasons why popular support can dissipate. They can include government counteraction, or the offer of a better alternative, or a sense of historical ripeness that may have been lost. The Marxist groups that were inspired by the Soviet Union would fit here. But most important of all in implosion is a terrorist group's own miscalculations, If you look at the number of groups that have ended in this way, by far the vast uh, majority of that number have um, made stupid mistakes that uh, other people have um, highlighted and that have resulted in a kind of a public revulsion against the violence that they've used. There are lots of examples. Um, The Omaha bombings with the real IRA would be the one that comes to mind. I don't have a lot of time so I'm not going to throw out a lot of examples. Um, A sixth Uh, way of ending is repression. I think we've seen the limits of the use of military force. It certainly accomplished some things, but I think it's not going to be the end of this movement. And then finally is transition, the last of the ways that groups tend to end. And by transition, I mean that groups go into other kinds of behavior. They can either transition to criminal behavior, um, as would be the case with Abu Sayyaf or the FARC, perhaps, or they can escalate to a full insurgency or even conventional war, especially if they're supported by a state. This happens when the group is able to control the behavior of a state according to its own interests, or even when an act of terrorism has completely unintended consequences. Terrorism that's used for provocation of state actions can result in this kind of outcome. One thing that I'd like to say at this point is that because transition is a very undesirable outcome for al-Qaeda and its associates. I think it's counterproductive to speak of this movement as a global insurgency. Uh, There are, I have absolutely no um, doubt that we need to talk about counterinsurgency uh, tactics and even use of military strategy in Iraq and Afghanistan. However, when you're talking about al-Qaeda as a broad movement, speaking of it as a global insurgency bestows legitimacy on it. It also puts us in that dichotomous, that two-part strategic framework that um, I was mentioning earlier, uh, I think has limitations. It emphasizes territorial control. It gives Al-Qaeda strength. It also forces us to defend regimes that we may not like. And it can be seen as putting us in the role in some parts of the world in the role of um, being almost a pseudo-colonial power. Um, I don't think it lines up uh, very nicely uh, or in any way that, that I think we want to perpetuate with the American narrative. So I think there are certainly limitations to um, calling ourselves uh, or calling al-Qaeda a global insurgency. Okay, so just to wrap up, um, the point is that this movement, this group, is either going to implode or transition And those two outcomes line up with the strategies of mobilization or provocation. Our goal clearly has to be to move it towards implosion. And to do this, we can engage in our own strategies of leverage. Uh, In particular, the best grand strategy to end al-Qaeda and to push it further toward its current um, tendency to excite a backlash within the region is counter-mobilization. And elements of that kind of a strategy, just to tick them off quickly, would be to be much more clear about what we mean by al-Qaeda, to articulate what it is and what it is not, to stop enlarging what the movement uh, means, to stop lionizing it, to exploit internal cleavages, to hive off constituents, to spotlight al-Qaeda's mistakes. I think we've been particularly bad at doing that. And to stop trying to win hearts and minds so much as to facilitate al-Qaeda's tendency to lose them. The bottom line is, what would an al-Qaeda future mean? Now, the last thing I want to say is on the potential for transition, which is the negative outcome that I worry a great deal about. I'm actually quite concerned about the threat of terrorism, not because I think al-Qaeda itself is um, is itself uh, resonating with a lot of potential recruits. I think uh, Mark Sageman is completely right that it's a self-limiting movement. But the problem is that the potential intersection between terrorist attacks and state actions is extraordinarily dangerous. And you can have a movement that's in a process of decay that can still cause states to react in a certain way through provocation, and then result in uh, systemic, um, even potentially nuclear war. So whether al-Qaeda is in the process of ending, which I believe it is, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that the end of terrorism is the beginning of peace. And uh, that leads me to the last point I'm going to make, which is that in addition to counter-mobilization, one of the things that I think the Obama administration would be wise to put its attention to would be to think through ways of cutting out the heart or the capability of uh, groups um, associated with al-Qaeda either closely or very loosely to cause states to provoke, to think not only about questions like um, when will the next attack be, but maybe even more importantly, what will we do after that? What will be the strategic steps that will be taken? And what will be the implications of those steps with respect to other states? So um, I think I'll end there. Thank you.
0: Thank you. All right. Well, we have about uh, 15 minutes for questions, a little bit more than that. Uh, Please wait for the microphone. Remember my ground rules from before. Please wait for the microphone. Keep your questions short. And identify yourself. Uh, I have a question down here in the front row. Wait for the mic. Here it comes.
3: Mia Bloom, uh, University of Georgia. I wanted to thank all the panelists for excellent presentations. I had a quick question for Audrey. Um, so the first question, two parts, very hmm. short though. The first question was, you've got decapitation aggregated between capture and target assassination, say, but I'm just wondering whether during the course of your research you were able to tease out whether one was better than the other. It seems Ojalon in prison and sort of um, taking back his ideology is much better than creating a martyr. So I was wondering there was that. But then the second thing, and I I don't know if it's helpful or not to add, but since implosion seems to be an ideal opportunity for you, where would you put splintering in your typology? Mm Um, firstly, on the question of ass assassination versus arrest, um, you know, I, I sort of, you know, um, glommed over what is a, a huge amount of um, information that's in the book I have that's coming out, and, and the chapter on assassination goes through the question of targeted killing or uh, you know, killing the leaders versus arrest, and the conclusion it reaches is that um, arrest has been most effective when it comes to ending a group. Um, So, I I mean, uh, there's data and all that to go with it, but that's the basic bottom line. And then the question of splintering, you know, you can't make a general answer to that question because um, uh, sometimes you want to splinter groups because you can get better intelligence and you can understand where the most radical factions are and you can isolate them and and you can begin to cut away at at a movement. So I think splintering um, from the point of view of hiving off parts of a movement can be very um, devastating to that movement. But at the same time, it may not result in lower violence. Splintering can actually increase the violence. So it depends on what you're trying to do.
0: Okay. Uh, Down here. Uh,
2: Damia Jones, DIA. Quick question for you, ma'am. I'm going to read it off to you. Um, The USG describes AQ as a network, movement, or both? In terms of grant strategy, like you mentioned, does it diminish unity of action addressing AQ, or do these descriptions have utility in the CT fight?
3: Uh, Do they have utility in the CT fight, Um, describing them as a network or a movement or both? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. do you mean how do you apply resources to the question of what we call it? or I, I'm, I'm not sure I understand the question.
2: In a sense of, in a sense of having networks, movements, or both, and applying resources. Obviously a movement can be targeted, and a network can be targeted, but you can't, in my mind, do both at the same time or sequentially. I'm wondering how do you feel about that, and do you think there's a, there's a utility or an order of battle, if you will, in how to do the CT
3: fight given the network definitions? Oh, an order of battle. Okay. <laughs> um, right. Well, I I think that um, the first thing I'm very uncomfortable with is calling Al Qaeda either a network or a movement without explaining exactly what you mean, because we have this tendency, and I did it when I was talking. I mean, it's a shortcut, but um, we have this tendency in many of our USG documents to kind of speak of Al Qaeda as if it's the new communist threat and to be very generalizing about um, what exactly we mean, and I think. Um, in terms of um, you know the publications that we put out, it would be better not to even describe the connections to al-Qaeda, but instead talk about the nature of individual local groups and the degree to which those have vulnerabilities. Now, the, the order in which we should hit local groups and individual parts of the al-Qaeda network depends upon the degree to which they are threatening to the United States. And, um, you know, I, I think that's kind of a um, an easy thing to determine.
0: Mark, you want to add something to that? Yeah, um,
2: just um, the way the question was uh, raised uh, is very troublesome because that type of not only question but what's uh, the assumption behind it, um, we often unify our enemies needlessly. I'm not really sure that al-Qaeda is that unified and as a matter of fact we know that before 9-11 in Afghanistan, you had uh, a lot of uh, people uh, in different camps kind of writing stuff against each other. I mean, it's really kind of uh, – this is what uh, the Combating Terrorism Center at West Point uh, published. Uh, it's it's really wonderful. And if you want to increase your vocabulary in terms of insults, uh, it's a rich <laughs> source of, um, of such things. So, you know, let, let's not – unify our enemy and give it strength that way. In a sense, I think we've done uh, a lot of that by confusing Al-Qaeda and Taliban and putting them in the same boat, whereas now I think we're trying to drive a wedge between them, which I think is a correct strategy. But I want to also add something else. Uh, I think that the three of us here kind of agree that uh, – four, actually – that – Uh, This al-Qaeda phenomenon, however you want to to, um, uh, describe it, is fading. But uh, I want to put a little uh, word of caution uh, that because it's fading does not mean that violence will decrease. Indeed, there's probably some very strong evidence showing that most of the violence comes when – a movement is fading because of splintering, because of uh, uh, trying to kind of still stay significant and so on. If you actually look at both the Italian Red Brigade and uh, various uh, leftist groups, uh, the two June Movement, the Red Army Faction, the uh, 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 revolutionary cells in Germany and so on, you could see that most of the violence came when those guys were completely fading out of sight. And, and so... Yes, I think we are winning in a sense, but uh, that doesn't mean we have to relax our vigilance because that's probably when they're most dangerous.
0: Um, in the back there on the rail.
3: Hi, Allison Slater, I'm a strategic planner in D.C., Uh, Two questions um, to the panel in general. And um, first of all, congratulations to Cato for holding this. I think it's a very interesting conference. But I think Mark Sageman kind of hit it on the head when he talks about it's not what they think, it's what they feel. There is an overemphasis, and this relates directly to the man's question just a minute ago, to lethal targeting and tactics and not the creation of a grand strategy. Could any of the panelists kind of look at that a little bit, and it's not just about disrupting terrorist networks, but creating the metrics to build societies from within that we're not so good at.
0: Who wants to take that one? Andrew?
1: I just – I, I don't, want, don't want to answer your question directly. <laughs> I, I do – it did raise something else, which as soon as you said it, about um, we do most of our work on civil wars, not on, not, not on terrorism. And in the Civil War literature, there are sort of two of the most influential people writing that theory, James Firon in that from Stanford and Paul Collier, who is now at Oxford, used to be at the World Bank. And they both argue, and their entire framework is a rational choice framework. And they both argue vehemently that grievances don't matter. Now. There's a problem here because the econometric models that they have can't measure grievances because they only measure things like GDP per capita and in indices and things like that. So what they do is they construct proxies. And their proxies would be, let's inequality, that's a proxy. Try that. doesn't work. No effect. So they come away with the conclusion that grievance doesn't matter. The implications of that are quite serious because if you think grievance doesn't matter, you never, ever address the concerns that people say motivate them and you only, you only, you're, all you're really concentrating on is focusing on changing the incentive structure for violence. And um, what, we've, what we've shown is that you know, even if you believe that their they're terrible, they're, they're terrible proxy indicators work, which we don't believe, but even if they, they work perfectly, you're missing the point. Because it's not the grievances of an entire society, which is what they're trying to measure that matter, it's the grievances of that 100, 200, 500 people who are the ones that actually go out and start a war or a terror campaign. So I think that, that there, there is something about American, North American academia that just skews everything so much towards rational choice theories that the sort of thing that Mark's talking about is just anathema.
0: It doesn't get dealt with. <laughs> I could probably speak to that personally. Um, uh, just as an observation, uh, I, I, part of the point of this project and of this two-day conference was to bring to bear – uh, the work that has already been done that, that the, the speakers are all well aware of, but to try to connect that good work being done to policy, and you find without scratching the surface very far that the simple, easy answers that are not actually connected to what is driving the problem are tend to be the ones that are easily measured and therefore not necessarily the right thing to do, and also easily connected to policy, which also may not be very effective. So that's just as an aside. Um, uh, there, sir, on the rail? Can you hear me? Yes.
2: Yes, Al Alborn here. And One quick question. I've heard many people talk about the metrics for how do we measure uh, terror, terrorism, counterterrorism, et cetera. From a terrorist perspective, uh, how important do you think media coverage is in their metric of success?
0: And considering the First Amendment and similar legislation in the EU, uh, are there any opportunities for government policy perhaps to limit coverage of terror success, considering it oxygen to the fire and perhaps if we take a bit of this oxygen away, it Audrey, might affect I, their success? Thank Audrey, you. Audrey, I think that directly applies to your issue about mobilization. Do you want to answer that?
3: Sure. Um, Media coverage is important. Uh, I think that as important as um, the question of the media is the question of what audiences an individual group is trying to reach. So it used to be in um, the 1970s, 80s, um, we used to talk about how terrorism was – Directly associated with the growth of the international media, and that this uh, that, that was a, an integral part of the the um, of what made terrorist attacks more powerful, particularly after 1972 with the Munich Olympics um, massacre and the copying of that um, you know, media fest by the PLO um, by many other subsequent groups. But but it's. We have evolved now to where it it really depends on what you mean by media. I mean, it's not just a matter of whether there's a television camera that follows the um, results of the attack. It's it's also a question of whether you mean by media access to the Internet or, um, you know, the ability to use traditional types of um, media resources in conjunction with newer types of media resources. I mean, communications have evolved so remarkably that it's not – As it was in the 70s, when what we were trying to do was keep CBS from covering, you know, a hostage crisis in a certain way, things are so diffuse now that the defenses against um, the oxygen for terrorism, as Margaret Thatcher put it, are not so very obvious. Um, In fact, I think it's more promising to engage in a more effective counter-mobilization, you know, counter-media approach um, in the broadest sense. I don't mean public diplomacy, which I think is a very very narrow concept, I think it's much more important to do that than it is to try to figure out ways to make our current media uh, pay less attention.
0: Thank you. Um, I have a hand down here. Time for about two more quick questions. One there.
2: Park from National Defense University. Uh, my question is directed to Andrew Mack. Uh, what will you consider to be the utility of force in the global war on terrorism if your conclusions are that uh, movements end only with either law enforcement, they being brought to justice, or fizzling out?
1: Thank you. Um, I don't think I would ever argue that there was no utility to force, simply that the evidence suggests that the way most terrorist organizations have come to an end had not been as a consequence of the application of military force. Um, I think I would also... I mean, take, if you take, for example, the, to try to explain what it is that happened with the, the collapse of al-Qaeda in Iraq, um, it would be very difficult to argue that that was the American military presence that was wholly responsible for that. It had a certain... It was al-Qaeda in Iraq essentially so alienated itself from the Sunni community of which it was part by its gratuitous attacks against, against Shia, which, re, which resulted in um, uh, counterattacks. In some sense, you're trying to provoke a civil war, which was not completely irrational. But that, the way they tried to impose their ideology, that then led to what was effectively a war against al-Qaeda in Iraq, run effectively by um, the Sunni tribes, helped by the United States. And that was an effective use of military, fo- of force, which reduced a particular terror organization to a fraction of its original strength. It can still go out and kill civilians. That's not so difficult. But as a, as a, as a political entity, having any chance of succeeding in any sort of, any sort of se- serious strategic objective in, in Iraq, I think it's completely finished.
0: Either Mark or do you want to add to that at all? Um, In the back, uh, did I see another hand? Maybe not. Hey, well, that means that we are out of time. Uh, Please join me. Welcome, uh, uh, applause for our panelists. We will will take a uh, short 15-minute break. Remember my guidelines to you. If you give up your seat, you may not get it back. So uh, thank you very much.